This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. If you go to YouTube, uh, just type in the three words, Spirit Matters Talk, and uh, it'll come up. Uh, we have uh, many, many shows in our archives, about 300. And uh, we do ask if you're listening or watching, hit the subscribe button. We would appreciate that. It costs nothing. Uh, we are committed to keeping our show free and uh, available to everyone. And for those people that have contributed to help us do that, thank you very much. And anybody who would like to do that, go to spiritmatterstalk.com. We have as our guest today, Willa Blythe Baker. She is a uh, PhD. She has a doctorate from Harvard University. She's the founder and spiritual director of Natural Dharma Fellowship in Boston, Massachusetts, and its retreat center in Wonderwell Mountain Refuge in Springfield, New Hampshire. She was authorized as a Dharma teacher and lineage holder in the Kagyu uh, lineage, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, tremendous background in, in that area and much to talk about her today. She's the author of several books, uh, which we'll also be discussing and uh, giving you information on today. So thank you so very much uh, for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you so much, Dennis. And thanks, Phil, for having me on Spirit Matters. It's great. I'm really glad uh, our mutual friend, Dean Slider, uh, told us about you. We're delighted to have you with us. Um, you have a really interesting background, as most of our guests do, but yours is a really unusual. And we always like our listeners to have a sense of the sort of uh, spiritual history of, of our guests. So if you can give us uh, an overview of you know, what set you on a spiritual path and why it took the direction it did to uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Well, it's always hard, you know, to trace back exactly when one's interest began. For me, I, I you know, I, was it when I was four years old, five years? I mean, I remember being as a child curious about what was beyond the realm of what I could see um, and what I was um, experiencing with my senses. Uh, I was interested in big questions, even, I don't know, I can remember being eight and, and being, um, trying to figure out whether space had an end or not. I remember laying on my back and just ruminating, could space have an end or not? And I remember then that was, I worked on, chew, chewed on that for a while. And then I chewed on, does time have an end or not? And does it have a beginning? Or is there always a moment before? And just, you know, those kinds of existential questions, I was drawn to those pretty young. Um, but then I also was born into a, a family of these um, kind of atheist intellectuals who had a little bit of a, a mystical side. My mother had a bit of a mystical side. And although she was a recovering Baptist, she also had this, uh, she was drawn to spirituality, spiritualities, Eastern spiritualities, 
Um, my stepfather and my father both also practiced Zen. So these books were laying around when I was a child and teenager that I picked up. Like I remember picking up um, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. And, and it's, so, it's so simply written, so straightforwardly written. So a 12-year-old reading that can get it. And, and it was really hitting some of his things that he said in there, like um, that, uh, sorry, I'm having a moment here to cut this part out. <laughs> um, but, you know, like those parts where um, he says that um, in the mind of a beginner, the possibilities are many, but in the mind of an expert, they are few those kinds of things were just really struck me as, oh, that's true. So I was drawn pretty young to, to Buddhism and, and to spirituality. And then when I was um, about eight, my mother took me down to the Transcendental Meditation Center in Berkeley, mm -hmm. and I learned how to meditate. And I know that you guys have a background too now. In I'll GM. bet it was Channing Way. It was Channing Way. It right. was Channing Way. We know Way. it well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was yes. in Cambridge at the time, but <laughs> so I wanted to ask you: Your parents today would be categorized as uh, being uh, spiritual, but not religious, probably. Yes. Right? They, they, yes. they were very spiritual. Uh, was there a point where you, when you made the decision to sort of pursue this, when you maybe it was when you started TM or whenever? Did it come from your intellect, maybe a combination of both, wanting to get uh, answers to those questions you were having, those very deep, meaningful, basic questions of life? Uh, or was there an experience you had when you started meditating, whatever, that triggered something that, hey, there's, there's more going on than I thought, and, and uh, this is what I pursue? Is it a combination of both those or something else? Hmm. I think it was primarily the experiences that I had early on in mm -hmm. sitting practice. And even then, even back being pretty young, the, I picked up that the intention of this practice is to experience peace. And it's possible to experience inner peace, not on the basis of your, the conditions of your life, but on the basis of turning inwards and developing a skill that helps you find refuge in your own peace. I picked that up really early. I think any kid could understand that. We understand that when we're, when we're afraid and things are turbulent, we understand when we feel happy and peaceful. So I understood the intention and then started undertaking the practice and found that it was so, that I did my nervous system would settle down. And there was just this permission to be just in the present moment without any other agenda, this permission, encouragement even. And I found that so soothing as a child and teenager. I continued, I went ahead and did their teenager course and that was, none of that was pushed by my parents. It was all me. I wanted to know how to deepen in this practice. 
Well, I certainly envy you uh, being exposed to things like that uh, at that age, because I was in my 20s when, <laughs> when I first read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and, and all the other influences. Um, how did you end up, or I don't, I shouldn't say end up, but what brought you to Tibetan Buddhism and being ordained as the Lama, which is not all that common for Americans, especially American women. Right. Uh, initially, I was drawn to to Buddhism's Buddhism, sort of as a bar, larger idea, and and Hinduism. I'm at the, early on, but you don't really know the difference. When I was really young, I didn't really know the difference. But my mother used to take us to the Nyingma Center in Berkeley on Hillside. I think it was Hillside Avenue. And that was a, a Tibetan Buddhist center. And she would take us for a Friday night uh, when I was, us and me and my stepsister, uh, when I was, you know, maybe nine, 10, to these dinners on Friday night. And there would be a dinner, and then after that would be a meditation. What I knew at that time, even at that time, was that I felt very drawn to the aesthetics of mm. that center. The colors were so deep and vibrant. There was this maroon, so different from the Zen environments that I had been in right. and different again from the ashrams, right? Everything has its own kind of tone. And I was so drawn to the imagery of the deities, the complexity and all the color and all the richness of that. I felt really drawn to that. Um, but, but then it, it really came down to, I would say my, my, my interest was solidified or cemented when I was looking to do a junior year abroad. And I knew I wanted to do it in a country that where meditation was a practice uh, or people practiced Dharma or practiced um, particularly Buddhism. And I, my choices were very limited. At that time, in the 80s, I had two choices, actually, <laughs> at that time uh, that I knew of, at least that the, you know, the, the International Programs Abroad Office at Vassar had two, two options for me. One was Japan and the other was Nepal and to live with Tibetans and study Tibetan and, and be in a refugee kind of environment. And, and, and J the Japanese program I mean, just came down to, to affordability. The Japanese program was twice as expensive as the program in Nepal. And I was like, well, that, that, that's the answer for me in my poor student days. I was like, okay, let's go with the, let's go with the bargain here and uh, ended up there. Yeah. And just, and, and when I was there, just fell in love with the Tibetan people, primarily the people mm. and the culture and, and the, 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 yeah, just the, the way that they were as a community, deeply rooted, interconnected, um, generally just a jolly, a jolly people who had gone through so much suffering recently with their exile and then um, living in refugee camps and in poverty and in sickness and still maintaining their cheerfulness and sense of humor was so moving to me mm. as a people that was their kind of way of encountering the difficult was with some fortitude they were tough funny and and fun to be around so <laughs> that that initially drew me into the now, when, when you when we went there 
were, did you notice a change in the quality of your inner experiences of your meditations? Uh, your external experience, obviously very different, very uh, enjoyable uh, and festive almost like in a, in a great way, what life should be maybe. Uh, but internally, were you also experiencing, experiencing a difference? Yes, yes, I was, I was. And um, one way I was experiencing a difference was through my, my relationship to my body, that I, um, at that time, I was struggling in college as a young college student with my sense of my re relationship to my body image and being, um, yeah, just being surrounded by young women who were dieting and counting calories and trying to be as thin, trying to be as thin as possible. And that really rubbed off on me and deeply affected my sense of self-worth and my sense of, I mean, it went deeper than just my relationship to my body. It went down into the relationship to the self. And when I got to Nepal, I just encountered this very different culture mm. where people were, body was more like coextensive with everyone else's bodies. And I felt like I was living in a communal body and felt supported by that. And somehow that just shifted my relationship to my body. And at the same time, there were these deity images on the walls, many of them of women powerful, enlightened women on the walls of these temples. I'd never seen anything like that in, in the West or any, anywhere. I mean, I suppose in, in Catholic monasteries, there must be Mary's probably there, right? That I'm sure that um, people of other faiths have these kinds of, of religions, but it felt like, I mean, these kinds of experiences, but it felt like these bodies were mirroring back to me potential. You could be you could be powerful and beautiful in yourself too. And so I was really um, moved by those images. So if I can pull up, Phil, because uh, I had this, this conversation came up in another context recently, and uh, the pressure on women in Western culture now, especially with social media and everything, where self-identity is uh, totally tied to a particular uh, uh, physical uh expectation of what you should be or, or, or what an ideal is. Uh, whereas uh, what these folks were talking about with meditation, it was a change in self-identity and that, that change went from that to, um, to their inner core, to their inner being. And, and uh, this seems to be uh, a, a huge issue right now in education, especially education of, of women uh, that, uh, and that, uh, that, that, needs to be, that's very much affected by uh, one having a, a way to go inward. Mm, yes, yes. And, and to discover that self is so deep um, that, that, that we can find refuge in, and this also was opening up for me too in Nepal and in the practices there that emphasize that we are primordially awake, that some part of us is primordially awake that we don't have to make ourselves more awake, although we could practice and that makes room to encounter that primordial wakefulness. But that idea that there is refuge already present in the soul or the body mind or whatever you wanna call it, that we can find a place of, of, of refuge inside 
helps disidentify with this notion of that myself is my name, how I look or whatever else. <laughs> those, those very transitory identities are not all we are. We're so much more. Yeah. Uh, this is a good segue to your uh, new book, Wake, The Wakeful Body. Wait, let me read the, um, the uh, subtitle, which is um, Somatic Mindfulness as a Path to Freedom. So tell uh, I want to know about what uh, led you to write this book, which uh, sounds body-oriented. Um, well, let's just go there directly. What, why that book? And I have questions about the book, but tell us about what led to it. Essentially, the book is a, <laughs> it's a manifesto about the power of the body to, to take the lead in our practice of meditation. And it, the book reflects where I am right now with my own practice. And this is, this is exactly, if, if you know, someone were to ask me right now, what do you practice? I would say, if you want to know what I practice, this is what oh, I good. practice. Oh, good. Hold it up. Hold it up. This is what I practice. <laughs> yeah, the, the Wakeful Body is the book. And um, yeah, my, my practice is, has come back home to the body. I kind of went away from the body in some ways and then came back home to the body through um, a number of avenues. And uh, one of them is dis discovering over time that, you know, in, in, in Buddhist circles, the word mind is very popular. And in the Buddhist scriptures and texts, we mind and nature of mind and consciousness and awareness. I have great love for all of those words and what they mean, a deep, deep love, deep part of my practice. But it's also possible uh, to, as Westerners especially, who are already somewhat disembodied, we are already so trained in our minds and we are already pretty um, thinking, we, we think enough, <laughs> we think enough as it is. And you give us a word like mind, at least me, a word like mind. And I subtly, I subtly believed for years, I think, that this thing, nature of mind, mind awareness was somehow up above the neck and, and, and maybe sort of out there, um, this, this, this mystical um, disembodied uh, infinite um, awareness that I could encounter and it would tr help me transcend this earthly life. And in that, what does that do for the body? It kind of leaves it behind, like just not, not very important. It's, it's just it's something to be discarded at the end of life and then we move on, right? Maybe that's true, but while we're alive, we are embodied and the body is our tie to our emotions, to compassion, to many kinds of wisdoms that we couldn't encounter any other way. It's the doorway to the senses. And how else are we going to rest in the present moment? 
if we don't have contact with those senses. So, so I slowly <laughs> discovered myself just by looking at my own practice and my own process that I kind of mentalized my meditation practice a bit entangled with thinking and, and my way back from that mentalization was to start grounding in the body and feeling the body's connection to the earth and letting that bring me back home into, into this feeling, sensing, complex, human, animal being that is the foundation for waking up. And so, yeah. Dennis, let me follow up if I can. Um, in, in putting the book together or in doing whatever research you did, did you draw from other sources other than the Buddhist uh, text, the Buddhist tradition? And um, two more questions. If so, how has the work gone over in the Buddhist community? And does any of that have to do with, and this is a personal question, so you can choose not to answer. Because I, I saw in your first early books, you use uh, the title of Lama, and you're not on this book. So three related questions. <laughs> okay, first question. <laughs> first question, yes, I am, uh, I did draw on, um, and other sources of wisdom other than those of the Buddhist tradition, because that's actually what I do do as a, as a, as a human being. I seek wisdom in many forms. I love to read literature. I'm a lover of poetry. I love to read poetry. I get wisdom. I get dharma. I get transmission. I get teaching from from poetry of all of all all religious traditions uh, actually um, and other and other denominations other than Tibetan Buddhism Zen poetry is amazing so I am uh, eclectic as as a human being in terms of where I seek out uh, wisdom and uh, if it resonates then it's it's wisdom and I love to read the science around uh, the body's wisdom and so I did some reading around the body's the body's wisdom from other sources like um, articles on, on uh, neuroscience on interoception did some reading on interoception proprioception and what these terms mean in the in in in, in psych circles and in um, science uh, from the scientific point of view physiological point of view and i found those sometimes the what i discovered there really resonated with my own practice of meditation and with the teachings of the tibetan tradition and with the himalayan tradition that talks so much about body as this enlightened thing this naturally enlightened entity um, there's this term vajra body that we find in the Buddhist texts that means the deathless body that is permeating your flesh and blood body. And, uh, or sometimes it's called the subtle body, subtle body in these 
uh, Buddhist texts, it's uh, a body that's made of energy and light, a prana body. And that we can contact that with our attention. And, and by contacting that, we actually can self-regulate our emotions and even our, our practice, even our own awakening. We can kind of orchestrate our awakening through paying attention to the body. And these traditions make so much sense from the from if looking at say the the literature on interoception the scientific literature that shows that we can train internal bodily self-awareness that can be entrained we can grow our our um, ia our interoceptive awareness through training this is this is what scientists have found and that's essentially what yogis are doing so reading some of this other literature helped me think about my own practice and tradition in a different light. And um, what else? Oh, you asked a number of questions. Yeah. Uh, asked the question about, about how, it, how, how the work was received in the Buddhist, Buddhist community. And then I impertinently asked about your use of the title of Lama. Okay. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, the Buddhist community, I, I am still, it's too early to say, I, I don't know yet. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know yet. I, uh, there've been a, a couple, only one, a uh, couple of reviews of the book, but they've been very neutral. There hasn't been any sort of debating kind of re reviews. Um, I'd sort of uh, hoped that maybe a little bit more of a cr some critical reviews might might come out of the, of, of the book or maybe someone would write. Um, I mean, of course, I want them to love the book. Of course, who doesn't? Who writes a book? You want your reviewer to love the book, but also, you know, to to debate with it a little bit or I haven't quite had that happen yet. So I don't know. Um, so far, so good, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious. Uh, you run retreats. So somebody uh, comes on the retreat and let's say. Uh, I don't know if you run advanced or beginner retreats, but let's say it's uh, people coming for the first time. Where do you start them and how do you introduce them to these concepts? Um, well, I, yeah, I start by pointing out that your body is grounded and that if you pay attention, the body is pulled. What do I, what do I do in my retreats on somatic mindfulness? I begin with the earth, what I call the earth body, which means that um, we have this very material, grounded flesh and blood body. We are animals and we are married to the earth, whether we want to be or not. We, if we jump, right, we're gonna come right back to the earth. That groundedness, that groundedness in itself is a profound Dharma teaching. So if you, if you want to deepen in your meditation practice, if you want to deepen in a practice of peace and stability, simply paying attention to that grounded quality of your body can help you become more grounded with the mind, the heart, the soul, just by paying attention to that and beginning to saturate that feeling of groundedness in your own body. So I start with that. Um, but from there, explore other layers of embodiment. And in, in the Himalayan traditions of Buddhism, uh, in the Buddhisms that, that come out of this really interest, interesting hybrid of Buddhism and Kashmiri Shaivism, 
which was very body focused and yogic. Um, this marriage of these two traditions uh, and this blending yielded this particular uh, type of Buddhism that's unlike any, any other in that the body is this place, this place of alchemy where awakening occurs. And it occurs in the core of the body in those traditions in this place called the central channel that's running from the crown of your head to the base of your spine, that awakening happens in the core of your body. So, so in these retreats, I, I explore the different layers of embodiment that we can contact and um, then um, encounter ourselves as embodied beings and begin to awaken from the bottom up instead of just from the top down. Mm -hmm. We can't think our way to enlightenment, but we can feel our way to enlightenment. So that's basically what happens in those. And your question, Phil, about the my title, Lama, because mm. I didn't get to that, <laughs> I was, um, is that, yeah, I stopped using it in the wider world uh, pretty much. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that it's um, understood by our culture, um, what these titles mean or what they are uh, necessarily, Roshi, Lama. I understand that by using them, maybe you're educating others to that there are these different um, titles like event, like in our culture, it's the venerable so-and-so or the, uh, or sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so, right? We have our own, in these different religious traditions, our own ways of addressing um, or the ordained. But I also am concerned about using the title beyond my own uh, vessel of teaching, where I do still uh, use it, or, I, or rather it's there. If, if someone wants to use it, they can, they don't, they don't have to. Um, but I worry about projections about um, that, that go along with any title, venerable or, <laughs> and, um, and I'm just more comfortable uh, just being human in, in whatever context I'm in, because that's, that's all that I am, <laughs> am personally. So I, I feel that, you know, projecting, oh, they must be very evolved or they must be enlightened because they have this title or they must be, uh, that I don't know that that's useful um, in general. So. Thank you. I, I appreciate the honesty of the answer. That's why I stopped calling Dennis your holiness. Uh, <laughs> Even though going I'm to his head. <laughs> but speaking of that, um, our mutual friend Dean told me that um, you have spoken out and uh, uh, have been engaged in uh, speaking out against about um, a sexual abuse that's come up in the uh, in the Buddhist world, as it has, as we all know, in the uh, Hindu and yoga worlds as well. Uh, would you, would you want to speak to that? Hmm. Sure, I can. Yeah, there's been, I mean, it's always been there. I don't think that it's not been there. And then suddenly now we right. have, it's, there's something new going on. I think that there has all, where, wherever there are people in power, there is uh, the possibility that that power can be misused. 
And I think it's happened in all traditions, all religions. And that more recently, um, there's been a Me Too wave in Buddhism. And along with all of the rest of the world has been having its Me Too moment. And it, you may even say it began um, before it was even in the wider culture, it was starting in, in the Buddhist circles. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, that any, any, any religion is prone to that. So yeah, so I did, I did, um, there was a moment there in myself too, when I was, uh, speaking, speaking up against that, um, misuse of power in the, in that, in the tradition, my concerns about, uh, primarily how these, uh, communities that we, <laughs> are a part of congregations, religious communities, whatever you want to call them, Dharma centers are, are structured. I think a lot of the, the, the issue, of course, some of it is human nature, humans in power, uh, use the power that they have to get what they want. And that's a, a human thing. It's a, it's not, a it's not exotic. Uh, but some of it, the problem is in the structures uh, of our organizations that don't have safety, safety measures in place to make sure that people in our organizations, women and men, are protected from that possibility of the misuse of power. And there are structures that you can put in place, um, like ethics boards and um, places to, uh, 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 ways to complain if you've feel harassed. Um, and, and that's still very new. There are many, many Buddhist organizations that don't still have those safeties in place. And until they're put in place, um, there will be harm. So that concerned me and it was very much a part of my own life. Mm -hmm. um, I was um, in a relationship with my teacher uh, uh, for years. And, um, and it took me a long time to begin to understand um, the unhealthy nature of that, uh, well, well before there was any Me Too movement, so we we don't know <laughs> that much. Um, and and then I encountered many other people. Have encountered many other people. Um, I would say you know well over a dozen uh, mm. women, primarily, who have been in the same position. Well over a dozen, maybe even two dozen since since I wrote my articles on uh, coming coming out and speaking out who, who have been in this exactly the same position. And it is almost universally uh, deeply um, painful and disempowering as much as I'd like to believe it could be otherwise. And maybe sometimes it is otherwise, I don't know, but I haven't seen uh, a great outcome for um, uh, you know, an uneven power dynamic and relationships with, with mm. ministers or whatever, especially when secrecy is involved. It's, it's very toxic. And yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I wanted to ask a final question from my side. And that is that uh, you're the author of several books and you also widely published. Uh, you write a lot of articles. Um, what is your focus now? Is there anything in particular? Is there I, well, this book is 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 relatively new, so it's it's out there. But any articles or books or thoughts you have uh, areas to explore in the future? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> I'm currently working on a on a translation 
of a Tibetan text from Tibetan into English of a memoir uh, by a, a 17th century yogi, uh, no, 18th century yogi, who writes about the natural world and how it inspires him to practice um, these amazing deep practices of meditation and then how the natural world is informing his practice so working on that <laughs> and um, and I have an article coming out on embodiment a kind of a follow-up to the book a little bit in disembodiment and embodiment uh, that will be published on the mind and life website could look for that too and I should uh, add um, that you have uh, on your website I noticed um, a uh, Dharma talk coming up virtually uh, called Natural Dharma. And um, that's on May 8th. So um, we want our listeners to know 20, about 22. that. And it, it will be on the taramandala.org website. We'll have that posted. Is, speaking of that, uh, Willa, one, one Last question, if you can answer it briefly. The, your talk coming up is called Natural Dharma. You, you have an early book called Everyday Dharma. And so the, the word Dharma uh, is used in different ways by different people. And most of our listeners have heard it. They may you know, have a sense of what it means. It's often makes me nuts when it's translated as duty. And um, so I'm wondering how you mean the term and how you use it in, in your teaching. So I, I, it's a multivalent term. And in Sanskrit texts and um, texts of other Asian, in other Asian languages also, um, the term is multivalent. So it, it doesn't just have one meaning. It right. can mean phenomena. It can mean duty or um, purpose even. And it can mean um, way, uh, way or path. Mm -hmm. And I like, I think I most often relate to Dharma as, as path, uh, mm -hmm. the way that I, that I think of Dharma is as one's, um, one's way, one's way of proceeding or way of being, that that is, that is Dharma. And I also think of Dharma as, as a, um, the teaching or the um, expressions of truth, mm. which could be coming from any direction. So like I was saying, I, I get the Dharma from poetry and from science and from, so I, I would be saying, I find my truths mm -hmm. in all of those sources. So Dharma as truth um, can mean truth. Yeah, so I, I guess for me, it means way and it also means means truth yeah. you're a dharma bum i'm a dharma bum <laughs> that's right <laughs> dean's, dean's new book by the way yeah right it's oh i know we'll yeah. have him on soon i love the book maybe I'm we so could uh one last good. time hold up the book hold up your book okay okay yeah so this the, is the wakeful we'll body. have everything posted up thank the wakeful you. body thank so you. that's now available and great thank you, thank you so much for being with us it's oh, been a great pleasure, day. and we hope we'll have you back again exactly. another time because there's a lot more I wish we had time to explore. But uh, everybody go see uh, Willa Blythe Baker's website and uh, check out. We'll have all book. of that posted up, by the way. So, and, yeah. Um, and Thank continue so the good work. Be well. Thank you.
Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks for having me on. And thank you all the all the watchers and listeners out there. Thank you. Great.